All right. Well, welcome to the Missionary District Podcast. I am Deacon Amos. And I'm Father Rob. And uh, today we're going to talk about holy orders. So I've had a few questions come in that are related to the topic of holy orders. And so I thought we could talk through some of that over the next probably two episodes. Uh, probably the first thing we should clarify is what exactly are we talking about? Like when we say holy orders, what do we mean by that? Uh, what's what's the definition of that? Yeah, I think maybe to make it really simple because of the depth that we're going to go in uh, in just a few minutes, holy orders refers to the threefold order of bishop, priest, and deacon, which is the most commonly held governance structure in Christian churches through history. The Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Anglican Church, some smaller sections of Lutheranism and Presbyterianism still hold to this threefold order. In addition to that, we believe that these three orders are a part of apostolic succession, which has been sacramentally handed down through the centuries, beginning with Jesus and his apostles. And again, we're going to go into what all of that means exactly, but I think it's kind of a base understanding or definition. Right. To start with. So some governance structure, yeah, a consistent governance structure that has been handed down through yeah. the ages. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I think, yeah, my first reaction to the idea of apostolic succession was not a positive one. I don't know if you remember your first reaction, but, but mine wasn't positive. Like I, I grew up as a Pentecostal. Um, I still consider myself a Pentecostal in some respects. But one thing I've, I've let go of is a distrust for structure. Like my understanding of the work of the Spirit was that he preferred to work with spontaneity, um, or maybe stronger than that, that, that he required spontaneity. <laughs> like I, I remember at one point, even the idea of having an order of service, like for your Sunday services, seemed contrary to the work of the Spirit. Because... Yeah. Even if you did everything the same every week, yeah, you couldn't yeah. write it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> you couldn't write it down. You couldn't yeah. have it pre-planned. Yeah, uh, because how can the Holy Spirit do anything if we've already planned out exactly what's going to happen? That's right. You know, where where is the room for Him to participate? Um, and so, when it came to apostolic succession, it just to me it seemed too restrictive, and that it didn't allow for the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just don't think that that's true anymore. I've come to appreciate that the Spirit actually likes order yeah. and that he's not limited by it. He can still work outside of, of those structures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, nobody's saying that he can't. Um, but we see from the very beginning, Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is working to bring order out of chaos. And it's only when he does that that life can flourish. And similarly, I believe that in the early church, the Holy Spirit moved through the apostles and their successors as they established this pattern of church governance. There's a bit of chaos in the early church. You can find examples, even in scripture, of something that might look more like a congregationalist approach or a house church sort of model of governance. But what we see emerging fairly quickly is this threefold order that you're talking about of bishops, priests, and deacons. And it's a pattern that endured virtually unchallenged for 1,500 years until the Reformation, and it remains the standard form of church governance. Yeah, and I, I like that you bring up the fact that you can see some of the other models in the Scriptures. It's not like a congregational church doesn't look at Scripture, they just make it up on their own. They're looking at a section of Scripture and saying, look, this is how the church functioned. And so it is understandable in that regard. 
But as you said, when you play out the pattern and that there was progression, even in the pages of scripture, uh, there is a pattern that starts to emerge very quickly if you actually continue to follow the story. Right. Yeah, as I've as I've thought about this, I think I think there are at least four ways that that I personally have come to be convinced of the the legitimacy of apostolic succession. Um, the first one is that it is scriptural. It, it's the model of church governance that best aligns with scripture. Uh, as as we've said, it's maybe not the only model of church governance that is defensible by scripture. Yeah, um, we can see examples of other things in there, but it, it's the model that best aligns with scripture. The second thing is that it is sacramental. Um, the third thing is that it manifests and preserves unity. Mm-hmm. And fourthly, I believe it expresses and safeguards uh, the message of the gospel. And if you're looking for a good book on this, uh, especially on that last point, uh, Michael Ramsey's The Gospel and the Catholic Church uh, is a really great read. Um, so, yeah, we'll just take those in order. We'll do. We'll try to tackle the first couple today, and then in the next episode that we do, uh, we'll try to hit hit the last couple and maybe some outstanding questions or something. But um, yeah, that first point is, is that holy orders is in scripture and in the early church. So Jesus at many times speaks about himself as being sent by the father. In, in Luke 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah and announces that he was sent to proclaim freedom for the captives and the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, And just a few verses later, he reiterates that he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Through his entire ministry, this this is actually a really dominant theme. Uh, Jesus only does what the Father is doing, John 5, 19. He only does the will of his Father, John 6, 38. Jesus is a man who is under authority, Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. And and Jesus was sent by the Father. The scriptures say that a ton of times. When we say that Jesus was sent— there are a couple of things that are implied by that. Namely, that uh, the message and the mission of Jesus, who is the sent one, have the approval, the authority, and the anointing of God the Father, who is the sender. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, uh, great overview of who Jesus was as the sent one. I think that's where it's got to start, if we're going right. to understand this right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was sent. And so, you know, what does that have to do with apostolic succession? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says to the apostles, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that the Father sent the Son, the Son now sends the apostles. In fact, the word apostle literally means sent one. The apostles were sent by Jesus to continue his mission and ministry on earth, and all of those same things are applied. The, The sent ones have the approval the authority, and the anointing of the sender. The apostles' primary means of accomplishing Jesus' mission and ministry was by uh, first writing scripture, so recording, codifying the message of the gospel, and second, by growing this community of people, which would become known as the church. Jesus himself did not personally leave us with a written record. He left us with a life-giving community filled by his spirit and led by his chosen apostles. So, so the apostolic message and the apostolic community were never meant to be severed from one another. Yeah. And so how does this community function? We see the apostles in obedience to Jesus' command to, to make disciples of all nations. We see them training successors who they eventually laid hands on and set into places of ministry. 
Timothy is a great example of that. And so, um, yeah, we have Paul, he not only trains Timothy, but he exhorts him then to do the same for the next generation and even helps him to discern good candidates for that. And, and on and on it goes through history, each generation sending the next. Discipleship um, sort of exemplified in leadership. And it isn't long before the successors begin to be known by another term, which is episkopos, which is translated directly as overseer, uh, but is also sometimes translated as bishop. A bishop in the New Testament church was the overseer of a particular church, a, a particular congregation. Uh, but as church governance developed, bishops began to oversee larger regions and presbyters or priests took over the bulk of the local ministry obligations. And so we see these things already beginning to form by the end of the New Testament record, and then they continued to develop into the early church period. And in the writings of the church fathers, we, we unequivocally see bishops as the link between the apostles and the Christian churches. And it seems that churches would even display their lists of successive bishops in order to prove that they were truly apostolic. And so here's Irenaeus writing in a, about 180 AD. He says, The tradition of the apostles is there, manifest throughout the world in each church to be seen by all who wish to see the truth. Further, we can list those who were appointed by the apostles to be bishops in the churches and their successors to our own day. I think that's really interesting. So it's it's very important to Irenaeus um, in the late second century that he can prove his apostolic heritage yeah. and that it's not an intangible thing. He's, he's saying, here's a list of names that proves my connection to the apostles. Mm -hmm. And this lineage is still alive and well in today's church. And I, I find that truly fascinating. We actually have an unbroken line of succession of hands being laid on from one generation to the next, right from Christ himself through the original apostles to our modern day bishops. And so, yeah, that's my first major reason, I guess, for accepting apostolic succession is that it is biblical. And it's not just me that thinks that, but church history testifies to the fact that this is what the church has believed and practiced from the beginning. Yeah, and I love the the use of uh, Irenaeus, and I think that this is where reading the Church Fathers on these subjects can come in handy, is that when heresy comes up, and they're all looking at Scripture a certain way, and they're all reading the writings of the apostles in certain ways, they look to see who they were trained by, who they were taught by, where is their lineage in gospel ministry? And so looking back through the lineage of the apostles through apostolic succession, it allows them to differentiate between what is the true gospel and what isn't. And uh, we have gotten a long ways from that, of thinking of where our connections are, the rootedness of our faith. And I think there's, there's a time that we're in right now where people are looking for that again. Right. They're, they're trying to look back and say, are we rooted in what has always been? Right. And where is my rootedness as part of this community? And I think it's the right question to ask. Yep. And there is an answer to that also. It's not a question that you just need to ask and then figure out all on your own. You look to the community to say, how has this always been answered? Yeah, in part, I think maybe what that's a reaction to, people are now looking for tradition, is, is there's been a lack of tradition, right? Yeah. And I... 
you know, I mentioned before the apostolic message and the apostolic community yeah. weren't meant to be severed. That's right. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, I think it has been an unintended product of the Reformation yeah. that those things have been severed. Yeah. And so we take the scriptures and, you know, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Yeah. Uh, this is all we need. And, you know, you look at the scriptures and you read them and you try to understand them and you say, well, obviously, you know, a congregationalist approach is the best yeah. way to move forward. And you, you develop convictions around that and that's the way you function. Yeah. Uh, without ever really asking, what did the rest of the church believe about this? Yeah, um, it's it's just your particular interpretation uh, supersedes everything else, and there's no real reference to the history of the church, the development of the church, any of those things. And so, I think, yeah, this this digging for roots and seeing, you know, are we rooted in not only what do the scriptures say, but what does the church believe the scriptures say? I think that's an important question to ask. Yeah. Not me as an individual, yeah. but the church through history and the church around the world. Yeah. Let's move together on these things and um, let's listen to one another on these things. Yeah. Even if you take a second to consider the solidification of the canon, yeah. you have to realize that there were books that were there at the end that the church went, not that one. Why? Yeah. It wasn't just a feeling. There were there were legitimate reasons that the church agreed upon the canon, and it had to do with the authority of God and his message clearly defined. Well, that means that they knew what that message was. Right. Right? And so then when we're going to the scriptures, we can find that message there. There's no question. I believe that with my whole heart. But how I interpret the scriptures has to be in line with how they did, right? So that I can know why that and not this other book out here. Yeah. Why does Why does the Gospel of John hold who Jesus really is, rather than a n- new book on the shelf saying find the real Jesus? Right. What's the difference between the two? Well, the church has always believed there's a difference. That apostolic line gives us uh, something to hold on to. It's a plumb line. Right. And Paul talks a lot about that. Right? When he's talking about the super apostles and yep. all of those things, he talks a lot about the fact that you, you need to be on that plumb line. Yep. And so f- these sorts of things were, when I started to consider them on a bigger scale, I started to realize, oh, there's been a plumb line. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I was off it for a while. Right. I, didn't, I didn't know any better. Yep. And I don't feel like God was judging me because of that. He, instead, he was very gracious to me and he led me to it. But I think that's what's going on in people's hearts is going... Where's the plumb line? What, how do I know? Where am I, am I off somewhere? Why don't I feel rooted? Why don't I feel assured? Yeah. And, uh, and you can't have that in and of yourself. You have to be a, a part of something bigger in order to feel those roots. Yeah, I think there's probably uh, maybe a bit of an intangible thing, but like a, a feeling that, you know, my, my faith, my doctrine is somewhat self-referential. Yeah. Right? Like I'm determining whether the church is right about yeah. doctrine X, Y, Z. Yeah. And if my local church is wrong about that, then I go to a church that's right about that. Like yeah. I get to set the truth ultimately. Yeah. And in, in our world, that's completely acceptable. Yeah. But it is, there's no grounding to it. And I think people are feeling that. They're, they're feeling that sense of 
almost being lost in it, yeah. swimming in all of these things. And it's all just self-referential. And so wh- where's the real thing? Where's, where's the bedrock yeah. that we can actually build off yeah. of? Yeah. And it, in the end, it's pharisaical. Uh, I'm not saying that all traditions outside of ours are pharisaical. I don't mean it that way. Yeah. I mean, if an individual is functioning that way, they are choosing to act like the Pharisees did, having these rules and regulations added upon based on themselves. Right. And and it's all self-referential. And when the truth is revealed, it gives you the opportunity to then choose and come with or to say, I prefer it my own way. Yeah. Which is really uh, anyone that reads the scriptures knows that's anti-gospel. Right. I'd like it my own <laughs> way, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Or they should, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to be clear to anyone that's listening, again, that's not about a tradition as a whole. I'm talking about an individual, if you're acting that way indiv- as, yeah. as a person. But it, it's so hard to see your own blind spots, too, yeah. right? Like we, Absolutely. we need to have the humility to listen to the early church fathers, to the reformers, yeah. to, you know, the church in Africa, in China, in India, yeah. and not just you know, modern Western voices and, um, and our own voice. Yes. Like. <laughs> yeah. And that's why Catholic thought is so necessary, which is what Irenaeus is pulling back through in the succession, right? This idea of Catholicity. What is the whole church held? Not individuals here and there that, are, that have a slightly different take on something, but what did we agree upon? What do we all, you know, hold to? And we have now, we're at a spot which is an unfortunate consequence of the Reformation, where there was a, an allowance for movements to be formed based on the, that individual right. um, issue, which has been through all church history. You know, you once you start reading the early church, you realize it's all there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was. But it it is endured in a way now. Yeah. Um, that was that's probably unprecedented through yes. the first fifteen hundred years. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's keep trucking uh, to the second um, sort of reason, which is the sacramental nature of holy orders. Um, so we've talked about the sacraments quite a bit on this podcast, um, so I won't get too bogged down um, in that. Uh, most people, I think, should be pretty familiar with the concept by now. Uh, but in general, a sacrament can be defined as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So basically the, the coming together of both a physical and a spiritual reality. Um, there's some debate about whether holy orders ought to be officially considered a sacrament or not. Um, but I think if you look in the, in the liturgy for ordination, there is no doubt that Anglicans believe that it has a sacramental character. Um, so whether or not you want to officially regard it as one of the sacraments of the church, um, not really the point here. It definitely has a sacramental character. Something is happening there beyond what is physically taking place. There's a spiritual dimension to it. Physically, hands are being laid on somebody, but spiritually, there's, there's a grace being imparted. As a Pentecostal, I firmly believed in things like laying hands on the sick, and I still believe in that. I think it's biblical. But why, right? Why is physical contact important? Um, I don't personally typically like to do things if I don't understand why I'm doing them. I often will out of obedience or obligation or something like that. But, you know, if I'm only laying hands on the sick because that's what we've always done, then I'd really prefer not to, right? Like I, I don't like empty traditions. 
And what, I, what I've realized is that I believe in laying hands on the sick because I believe something actually happens when hands are laid upon somebody in faith. And although I might not understand it, there's more happening in that action than just physical touch. It's probably fair to say that along with the physical touch, there is potential for something non-physical to be imparted. In, in this case, maybe a grace for healing um, or at least something like comfort. Um, in other words, our laying hands on the sick is a sacramental act. There, there, there's a physical and a spiritual dimension that are at play. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles lay hands on seven men who were full of the Spirit and wisdom in order to appoint them to serve the community. So in this case, we again see laying on of hands in prayer, but this time it's not for healing, it's for an appointment or a setting in place. It's, it's an early form of ordination. And what happens as a result? Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. What we see in the following chapters is that something permanent took place in the lives of these seven men and in the church itself. The, these men were forever changed. Although they were already devout men of faith, they received that day a level of authority and anointing that they'd not known before. They, they were appointed to serve tables. And in the very next chapter, we see Stephen, one, one of the seven, giving a public proclamation of the gospel en route to becoming the first martyr in the Christian church. And it's amazing. The laying on of the apostles' hands was a sacramental act. There was a supernatural grace for ministry imparted to the seven for the purpose of building up the church. And so, you know, when I talk about um, holy orders being sacramental, I think I really mean two things. First of all, that through the laying on of hands, the individual receives the grace needed to enable them to function in the office to which God is appointing them. And secondly, that this grace is given for the church. Um, I would even say that it's a grace to be the extension of Christ to his church. Uh, but let me clarify that. I'm not saying that a minister stands in the place of Christ. That is, they don't stand to represent him as if he is absent. They stand rather to communicate the active presence of Christ to his people. Right? We don't believe that Christ is absent and now we have a bishop in his stead. The bishop serves to point us to our ever-present shepherd, teacher, prophet, and king, who is Jesus. So apostolic succession gives us an objective guarantee of the perpetual presence of Christ with his people. And I think it's also important to note that Christ is always the one who actually bestows grace. Um, I think if we don't understand that, then our understanding of holy orders or of any sacrament can turn quickly into a form of idolatry. We will be looking to a man or to a religious ritual instead of to Christ. But in the administering of the sacraments, we do not look to the one presiding. Rather, we always look to Christ himself. Whoever it is standing in the waters of baptism, it is Christ truly who baptizes. Whoever it is saying the words of consecration at the Eucharist, it is the Lord truly who presides at his table. Whoever it is saying the words of absolution, it is Christ who forgives. And when hands are laid upon someone in faith, it is Christ who heals and Christ who ordains. And this is really important because 
I think there's a little bit of a desire in all of us to be Donatists sometimes. <laughs> uh, the, the Donatists considered a sacrament to be invalid if it was performed by an unworthy minister. And the response of Augustine and the church to the Donatists was basically to say, well, there's no such thing as a worthy minister. Like the sacraments are given by Christ to his body and the failures of the minister don't impede that. Uh, People always want to bring up in this discussion uh, the sin and the corruption in the medieval Roman church. And my response to that is to say that the grace of Jesus is more powerful than our sin. Our whole religion depends on that. Why are we so quick to forget that? Has there been sin and corruption? Yes. (laughs) And unfortunately, there will continue to be until Christ returns. Does that in any way compromise the efficacy or the validity of holy orders? No, absolutely not. Sin and corruption do not have the power to invalidate or hinder the grace of God. Christ is the head of his church. It is Christ who administers the sacraments. It is Christ who bestows his grace. The grace that is imparted through apostolic succession is rooted and preserved in Christ, not in man. Always, always, always look to Jesus. Uh, I absolutely agree with this and love this whole section where you're talking about the authority of Jesus and it being truly him. And I think it's helpful probably for us to address the idea of absolution here. Right. Absolution is the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. We see that in the liturgy at a specific moment in Eucharistic liturgy, where the priest who is presiding at the table uh, declares the forgiveness over all those who have just repented. Um, And that is a scary moment for some. It makes everyone a little bit nervous to think that this person might have the ability to forgive or not forgive my sins. And is it actually theirs? That doesn't seem quite right. But the reality of absolution actually exists in what you just said about Jesus. He is the head of his church, and it is him who administers the sacraments. So because of that, we know that when we speak of absolution, we're speaking about Christ's forgiveness. It is his forgiveness, and it is Christ, through the Holy Spirit, applying that to the lives of every believer. And yet, it is also true that Jesus has given authority to priests to act under his authority to pronounce God's forgiveness in response to repentance and confession of sin. So just as you said, the priest absolving sins objectively communicates the forgiveness of God. Right. It is a moment where people can can hang their hat on. I know I am forgiven because that just happened. Uh, earlier, you read John twenty twenty one. The following two verses, 22 and 23, are the primary basis for this understanding of absolution. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So again, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable to hear that. But it's not meant to. It's not meant to bring anxiety to individuals. Remember, we keep coming back to the fact that the sacraments are not magic, and that includes holy orders and absolution. As a priest in Christ's church, I'm not a magician. 
I am simply functioning in his ways and under his authority. Sometimes you dress like a magician. Yeah, that <laughs> could be true. Sorry. It's the makeup, the red nose. <laughs> now you're thinking of a clown. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was. I totally was thinking clown. It's the top hat and the wand. That's a magician. I totally had a clown in my head, in my mind. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the clothes, I'm not a magician. <laughs> so <laughs> scripture is clear that the only thing necessary to receive the grace of absolution is repentance. Right. Meaning a priest is not the one who holds absolution and decides if they will let someone have it or not. But we do have authority to pronounce it as fact. Right. The last thing that I'll say uh, about this is, is about our practice as Anglicans. I think that our practice demonstrates this both-and picture and reality of absolution. If a person is praying the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer, they'll see that they're asked to do daily confession. Yeah. That happens whether you are with a group or not. If you are alone, you are still called to confess and receive Christ's forgiveness day in, day out, morning and evening. That's there because we believe Christ forgives. And if you truly repent, meaning you intend to resist further sin, you accept responsibility for your actions, and you endeavor to repair damage your sin has caused, then by faith, you are able to receive God's forgiveness. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we believe the priest has been given the authority to absolve sin, but it is God's authority and power, and you are able to receive his forgiveness directly from him anytime there is true repentance. Yeah, that's great. I think um, sort of back to our earlier conversation about, um, you know, interpreting the Bible. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would read John 20, the, those verses that you read, and still not necessarily understand um, the limits there. Yes. Right? Like he's, he's speaking to his disciples or his apostles. Yeah. And I think oftentimes as modern readers— we read the Bible and we apply every verse to ourselves. That's right. We go, oh, Jesus gave me this authority. Yeah. Uh, but he's actually speaking to a, a specific yeah. class of people yeah. who have been set aside to lead the church and to minister in that way. Yeah. And so it's not, that's not a universal thing. Right. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And then I think that that's where the fear comes. And then that's the way that the church has understood it through that's history right. too. Like it's yeah. not like... Everybody in church practices absolution no. um, in the same way that a priest does. No. It's, it's always been reserved to the priesthood. That's right. And I think that there's Jesus consistently is seeing that separation. Even if he's not making the separation, he, is, he does that at times, right? He calls those apostles up to himself, separates them out of the community to have a specific ministry for the community, for right. everyone else uh, on his behalf. He doesn't call everyone that's standing at the base of the mountain up. Right. He picks 12 and calls them up. Uh, but that's hard for us, and we don't love that idea that maybe there would be limitations on us in any way. 
Um, and I think that we... It's very countercultural. Very countercultural. Yeah. And I think that that's where we have to allow ourselves to be formed by the apostolic message, Scripture itself, as understood through all of church history. Yeah. We need to be formed by the outside. And that was what convinced me personally of all of this. Right. Was the realization that if I don't have anything pushing its authority on me, I'm pushing my authority on it. Right. I'm forming it always. Yeah. So my prayers were formed by me. My understanding of scripture was formed by me. My understanding of God was formed by me. Really quickly, you realize that that's not what God calls us to in faith. Right. He has defined himself and he has given himself and that self-revelation to the church. Yeah. And that has to form me. Yeah. And so that was kind of that personal moment where I realized, oh, I have to start reading differently and it has to be in line with how God has always been known right? and not me imposing that. And so that was really helpful for me, but then it allows me to read these passages differently yeah. because I start reading that it's not all about me, right? I'm not reading it. I'm not reading Jesus into a situation and thinking, putting myself in Jesus's place. <laughs> right, I'm putting myself in the place of those that cast him off and send him away and right. treat him wrongly, and yeah, yeah. and as I am that person, yeah, and uh, yeah. So you're totally right, and that's been really helpful for me. Yeah, and and being informed by church history, how to read those passages is is really helpful because there are, you know, if we think about the Great Commission, for example, yeah, yeah. we actually do consider that um, largely to be a universal commission to all of God's people. That's right. Even though there he's also speaking specifically to his disciples. Yeah. Um, and so why why do we do that in one case and not in another? You know, there's biblical rationale for that. We could get, you know, deep into the scriptures on that. Yeah. Uh, but we can also look to how has the church understood these passages? How have they practically responded to these passages um, and, and figure out our answer that way as well. Yeah. And it allows you to hold two things in tension, which is something I think you encourage consistently. And it's been so helpful is to not be so black and white all the time to, to allow tension to right. be present. Yep. And God calls us to that all the time. So the idea that priestly ministry functions and John 20, 22 and 23 exists does not take away first Peter priest of all believers. Right. In fact, it only enhances that enhances that if you actually are, allow yourself to hold both. Because what we just described around absolution shows us that there was those set apart that were called to as a fact. Yeah. Speak out Christ's forgiveness and and they have the authority to do that and because we are all priests yeah. that can come and be in God's presence, we can draw near to God and be forgiven yeah. even when a priest isn't present. And so those together, and mm -hmm. and that's where some who, you know, there would be some who would be on the other side that are different from our backgrounds that would be on the other side that say that I can have no forgiveness if the priest doesn't forgive me. Right. Right? Yeah. And so there would be people on that other side, which I go, you still are missing the tension. Right. There is a tension there in the gospel that's almost always present. Yeah. Uh, that you, it is not one or the other. And, and as you consistently say, the, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is our example of the fact that two things can be true when we're dealing with God. Yeah. That our mindset and w the way that we're raised to think 
may not give space for. Right. And so we've got to allow that to change our mindset. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man allows there to be a tension within us yeah. that wouldn't be there if we were just following culture um, and following our own way. Right? Yeah, and I think, you know, when we think about all of the different callings that exist in the church, mm-hmm. there, there's a sense in which it's a universal calling, yeah. but there's also very often an, an archetype of that or um, right. people who are called to be specific examples of that, yeah. right? Like everybody is called to evangelize their yes. friends and their neighbors and their coworkers. Yeah. Some people are called to be evangelists yes, um, and to exemplify <laughs> that and to call all of God's people up into that calling. That's right. And so the priesthood is no different in yeah. a way. The priesthood of all believers is certainly there um, and all of God's people are called to priestly ministry in the world yeah. um, and even to participate, I think, to a degree in things like absolution yes. by offering forgiveness yes. to people who have hurt them, things like that, right? That, yeah. That's a participation yeah. in that absolution priestly ministry. Yeah. But there's also people who are called specifically and set apart to that office yeah. that God calls to exemplify that form of priestly ministry. Yeah. And and those people have a particular special authority yeah. to do particular things. That's right. And and I think where one of the examples I use when I'm talking to people that often gets um, helps because the actual words are used a little more clearly in scripture, because priest can be a hang up for people. Yeah. Um, and what we mean by that, and I, and I understand that um, other than Paul calling himself a priest to the church in Rome, which right. he does, yeah. um, you know, it's not used much in, in, in any other place, really specifically in the New Testament. But when we look at the gift of prophecy and Paul saying, I wish that all of you would prophesy and it's listed right. in the spiritual gifts and all of those things. And yet you read the book of Acts and there were prophets and prophetesses. Right. People set apart to be that. Yes. And they had that role in the church and all should participate. Sure. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think that that example gives us another picture of uh, there is a both and to this, a personification of the gift. Yeah. That is supposed to be a picture of Christ who is still active in your life in that way. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. So maybe just to kind of briefly summarize those first two points that we went through. Yeah. Um, the practice of ordaining successors to apostolic ministry through the laying on of hands was normative very early on in the history of the church and founded upon what we see in the New Testament itself. It is, it is a biblical practice. Mm-hmm. And in holy orders— The minister receives a divine grace from Christ to function in the office to which God has called them, and the church receives a a tangible sign of the abiding presence of Christ with his people. Um, Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great overview. Great. So, yeah, next time we'll talk a little bit about the relationship between holy orders and the unity of the church, and then we'll ask how this practice communicates the message of the gospel. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Rob. Thank you, Amos. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.